לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. ברשתה. Not a parsha to talk about. Nothing's going on here. Well, nothing important. Nothing there's there's no skin disease. There's no ritual impurity. There's no animal sack. There's nothing. That's right. Let's skip. No, there is so much. This is the beginning of the, the story. I, I reviewed last year's parsha talk, and we, we did uh, speak at length about lech lecha. So I would encourage people to want to get a good discussion about the iconic phrase defining this parsha. Go to last year's parsha talk. On any of our websites because it's it's still up there or YouTube channels but um, let's talk about uh, something else with regard to the opening which is that Abram 75 years old when he when he when he is called okay Rabbi Jeremy coming up you what's that about what's going on there Jer- he's he's 75 years old there's a whole lifetime there or more what's going on uh, just so it happens that uh, this week you In morning minion on Monday which we're not typically in person in this in this era zoom era you know code era um, on Mondays we we read the Torah without Bracho but this week Columbus Day or indigenous people's day as we call it now um, we did have a, a in-person dominating and guy guy read it who's uh, who's celebrate was his bar supportion he's now 73. And I said to him, look, look how much life you got ahead of you. Avram was two years older than you when he first went on this whole journey thing. So you got a lot to look forward to. Here's to you, Sheldon Lewis. Um, I, th- I think that the chronology, especially in these early parts of Genesis, having to do with when people are, are born, uh, the, age of the, the age of a parent when, when they father a child and, and how old the people are when they, when they have children and then die, It links us into the weave of the narrative weave and Terach, who we learned at the at the end of the last Parsha, he also made a journey from Ur Kasdim and he tried and failed to to reach Canaan. Terach lived 70 years then he then he gave birth or gave rise to Avram Nahor and Haran and uh, Terach will ultimately live 205 years. He's 70 when Abraham is born. Abraham is 75. That means that Terach is 145 years old when Abraham leaves with the Lech Lecha, and he's going to live another 70 years. So I think that the story uses this small detail to augment that strong sense of um, Abraham was ready for a big journey in his life, 
but he is from your land, leave your land, your birthplace, your ancestral house, make some rebellion, some uh, some uh, crafting of your own identity. And the, the chronological detail, if you're paying close attention, lets you know that he leaves a parent who, okay, at 145, we wouldn't call that at the prime of life, but in these early biblical chronologies, man's got a lot of life left to go. And Abraham is still saying to him, I'm going in a different direction in my life than you. And, and so I think it kind of, with this small detail kind of ramps up the intensity of the gesture of Abraham's journey. So what we can add is that Abraham is both the new Adam and the new Noah, but the world now is much smaller. The world is going to be circumscribed by the land of Canaan. With Adam, we had the garden, which was basically all that there was. With Noah, we had the whole world as the arena. And now the arena is going to move to this small patch of land that we love, the land of Israel. And so, as Jeremy pointed out, Abraham, by leaving his father behind, is leaving his past, both literally and metaphorically. Okay, so, so there's a lot of disruption going on in the life of Abraham, disconnection uh, from, from the past, dis disattaching from the family. Uh, but uh, just one little footnote here. So, so we have uh, a loss of a sibling. Abraham loses his brother, Haran, in the lifetime of his father, Vayaman Haran Alpne Terach Aviv. So Haran, the third youngest brother, dies Alpne Terach Aviv in the lifetime of Terach. So Terach becomes, is bereaved of one son and then will lose, quote unquote, another son in the prime of his life, as you said, Jeremy. So, so he will have one son left over. And it, this kind of explains why he doesn't move on. Nahor stays in that area of Haran. Terach stays with him. And, and uh, you know, we, we don't know when the call is given to Abraham. Maybe it's given before they leave Ur-Kazdim, because that's what he's told. Leave your, your land, your birthplace, your father's household. But, but um, Terach stays. And so, so he, there is what keeps him. And Avram has to, has to follow uh, the, what God has, has uh, commanded him, basically. So let, let's go on to the next wait, wait, one. Wait, can I say one thing about this? There's a, um, there's a Midrash, and the details, I'm sorry, are kind of fuzzy to me right now. But the, in the course of our parasha, the Brit Bein Habitarim, um, it says that, uh, you know, God, Abraham gets this kind of night vision, um, and God says to him, you know, your 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 children are going to be uh, uh, slaves to somebody 400 years. Later on in the Exodus narrative, it says 430 years, and uh, and the, the Bible will also say at a different point, like 210 years or something. But how how are we, how are we going to make this all make sense? 400 years, 430 years, and there is a midrash that says that we're talking about different starting points in the counting, that when it's 400 years, it's from the birth of Isaac. And when it says 430 years, it means from the very time that you left uh, Haran back. I'm a fuzzy on the details, but it's roughly like that. Anyway, why do I say this? Is that to make that work, the Midrash posits multiple journeys of Abraham. That is to say that he leaves he leaves Haran and leaves his parent, and he goes to Eretz Yisrael, land of Israel, 
where the Brit Bain Habitarim, which will which appears in our Torah in chapter 15, Genesis 15, happens, and he gets this promise that the, he will have descendants, don't you worry, but that they will be uh, enforced as slavery, and then zings back to Haran, and then makes another journey, and the Lech Lecha comes after the Brit Bain Habitarim, which is you know, it's, it's not strange for Rabbinic Midrash to take the, to take the Torah out of order. That's one of its techniques. Um, but I, what I like about that Midrash, uh, aside from its inventiveness, is that it doesn't make Abraham's journey um, a one-time, perfectly executed break. It makes Abraham's journey a shuttle. He goes, he comes back, he goes again, he's got he's to head down to Egypt. And I think that, that 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 appeals to me because I think that human journeys are a little bit more like that. They're not like once once and for all I'm leaving and and the new the new era begins. I'm, 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 they they I'm, turn back and forth. I'm holding myself back here because I disagree with you so much here. I think. Okay. <laughs> I'm That's sorry. Good. No, I look the midrash. The midrash obviously makes a point, and and um, and and yeah, when we when we when we have that text in front of us, we could see the point that it's making, and and there's a case to be made for for shuttle service okay but this is about disruption and this is a boundary moment and there's a before and there's an after and this is the beginning of the jewish story so I, look I'm, I'm heavily weighted into no. a, a very a, a very plain or simple or or direct reading of this of this passage go ahead but what i'd like to add here i was thinking about your comment about tarach and tarach foreshadows mrs lot yeah. He also can't leave. And the Jewish journey, as it begins with Abraham, is about moving forward. That it's about the new land. Lot can't really make it to the new land completely. He's going to take a slight detour, but his wife doesn't even get that far. Terach makes part of the journey, but he can't go all the way. But Abram, in our Parsha, uh, until the end when he becomes Abraham, he sets things in motion by moving. Okay, so, so yeah, Elliot, I'm, I'm a, I, I, of course, I recognize what you're saying, but I'm going to double down on my position and say that that um, the Jewish tradition is a wonderful dialectic of identified homeland and consciousness of exile, and the way I described coming, returning, shuttling um, is is I think. I think it's kind of instantiated in life. Of course, the story, part of the narrative power of the story is the once and for all disruption. But I think that the way it works in real life may often resemble the one step up, two steps back kind of experience of life that, that I feels true about my life. I'm, I'm smiling because I always veer towards the darker interpretation here. And, and, and the fact that, that, that you know, the, but to see this as a migrant experience and knowing overshadowing, you know, contemporary North American Jewry is, is a century of echo of, of the migratory experience in, in which 95, 99% of the people who migrated here on, on boats to Ellis Island or to Pier whatever in Halifax didn't go back to, to Europe. They, and they left everything. They, they, you know, the story is they came with two pennies in their pocket. It was a it was a cr incredibly disruptive, you know, dislocating experience, and and they they weren't able to go by some. some I, I think to add to what Jeremy said, though, the way that we remember that is as a a much better version than it actually happened in real life. 
Okay. And so I think we have something the way the Torah story is also. The Torah story smooths out all the rough edges, and you really have to work to piece them together, right? We're told that Abram is 75, and that obscures the fact that Tarach is still alive. And I think that, you know, what we have here is also a, a brooding, as it were, on how we remember things, both as a people and as individuals. And there's a great deal of tension in that. Okay, so just one footnote, which is a concession to Jeremy also, which is, so, so the 205 number for Terach's death means that, uh, that Abraham will tend to his father's you know, funeral in, in, in his life. And, and, and that's where he, he does go back to Haran, buries his father, okay? And then in the ensuing years, there, there's just a series of calamitous events for him. The Akedah, the death of Sarah, happen all within the space of, of those, I think there are about three years there. Okay, but, but w- without, without getting, you know, we, we should show charts and everything. Let's, let's talk about what happens when he goes into the land and, and the peculiar way that the text tells us all we need to know without telling us anything. And it's, so Abraham goes to the land of Canaan, Vayavor Avram Baaretz, he kind of meanders his way through the land, Admakom Shechem, God is leading him to Shechem, Adelon Moreh, which is, you know, another name for Shechem. It's in the northern part or near in, in, the, in the hill country in Samaria, Vakanani Azbaris, and the Canaanites are in the land. So uh, just tell me what that, that note is doing there. What, what is the Torah telling us by saying the Canaanites were in the land? Here, God says to Abraham, going to a land, but the other people in the land, buried. Well, one of the Zionist tropes was that the the people without a land would end up in the land without a people. But as we see already in the Torah, there never was a land without a people. Canaan, as it's described in the Torah, has always been filled with peoples and people who live very differently. And what I find most impressive here is that in the, these first few verses of chapter 12, it's a peaceful land. There's no reason to think that anyone is going to be dispossessed by Abram arriving in the land. And um, already as we work our way through the Parsha, we're going to see that people are going to be dispossessed. There's a, a, a brutal war that takes place in chapter 14, and Abram is going to be moving in and out of the land, and um, there are going to be interactions that suggest that, you know, it, there's always trouble in paradise. <laughs> May I say it in a different way, and Jeremy will react to this, which is, which is so God makes the promise to Abraham that, you know, you're going to, I'm, I'm taking you to this land, and then later on says, I'm going to give you this land, but... The Torah is saying, meaning there's a reality here, a reality that you, Abraham, have to deal with. And that and it is a political reality. A political reality is that, you know, we are, you know, I'm giving you the land, but there are other people in the land. So what does that mean? Does that mean you're going to have to dispossess them? Or does that mean the project that I am setting out, you know, in front of you is the project where you have to either bring my name to the land. I will, you know, God said in the opening, I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. So is Abraham's presence there a challenge 
to the rest of the people, love me or don't love me, or is Abraham's presence a political presence? I just want to add one little note, which is, what does he do after that? He, he, he picks up and he moves. He moves to another place, right? He moves to Bethel, between Bethel and Ai, and then he moves Hanegba, he goes south, which suggests to me he doesn't want this reality of having to live near him. He's a guy who likes... He, you know, he wants to have his own territory. He wants to have his own, you know, place to to sit. Well, but that I don't want this to sound as harsh as it may come out. That seems so simplistic. <laughs> okay, that's a good way to invite the next the next response. <laughs> <laughs> so you know. I think that two things that we, the three things we have to contend with here. First of all, there's no quid pro quo in the, the covenant that God makes here. God is going to do all this stuff for Abraham, who's not going to do anything. And there's a, a whole passive side that animates to Abraham that animates this Parsha. He is put into situations where he doesn't quite act the way that we think he should. And it's not always clear whether that's a good thing, even though apparently there's a blessing with it. So uh, when he goes, uh, sorry, no, there, we we know that that. So look, taking the the Torah at, at its face, where God says and He does, He 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 goes. So so there is a response, and 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 that response teaches us something about Him. That on the one hand, yes, there is obedience to Him. But there's also, you know, a sense that he is that he might want to leave his his crazy family of origin, where his sister-in-law is also his niece and all that. <laughs> but but the point, the Barry does have a, a strong point here that um, you know when Moshe makes the covenant with God at Mount Sinai, it's about time to you leave Kadosh. You're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You got very specific. Um, covenantal demands and, and by the end of this parasha you know we're going to get circumcision and that is a, a gesture of all in that is a gesture of love and commitment and it's not while it doesn't have you know articulated meets vote the way that the, the Torah will come to have it, it, it's not nothing either it's a way of saying I am going to mark myself as completely devoted to you God but at this point, that, that part is kind of lacking. Um, and it's, it just appears that I've, I've picked you somewhat arbitrarily, and I'm going to make you this promise. Abraham has not yet earned it. But by that, that's why the Midrash, by the way, to, to take us back to what is surely the most famous passage in all of rabbinic literature, that to this day, people are always still surprised it's not in the Torah, but Abraham smashing the idols. That, that is a rabbinic attempt in Breshit Rabbah, in, in the Midrash collection called Breshit Rabbah from the fourth century or fifth century, whatever it is, um, to explain this apparently arbitrary assignment of covenant that doesn't say yet, you know, in, in, in chapter in chapter 18, we'll get more of these things. It doesn't yet say be brave and be loyal and, and be wise and, you know, believe in monotheism and all that stuff. It hasn't happened yet. So I do, I do think that Barry does, does have that on target. And Abraham, because of the wife sister episode, not only does it not have those things, it doesn't impress us over over much with uh, Abraham's enormous excellence. I, I just want to answer that what makes Abraham Abraham is that God speaks intermittently to him and just on the basis of, of very few inter, 
actions, he has faith. And, and I think that that resonates with, with, with a life of faith. God, we don't, you know, we don't hear God's voice, but we, we, we've dedicated our lives as people who live in, in Jewish life to follow the Torah, despite the fact that it's mediated through the text and the tradition, but we have not had any direct access. Right, but what the voice we really don't hear in the Parsha is Abram's voice. Yeah. So we hear God's voice. God says, Lach Lecha. And he says more than once, I will make you a great nation. I will give you this land. And Abram doesn't really respond. And even at his great moment in the Parsha, which is the war in chapter 14, at the very end, he says, oh, no, I'm not going to take anything, lest you should think ill of, Ill of me. You know, he's, he's petulant. And one of the things that is so striking in the story is that if we would believe the numbers, Abram commands quite an army. He has 318 people in his little army, which is quite impressive. But he doesn't act like he belongs. And one last piece on this is that what is interesting in his comment to the king of Sodom, when he says, I'm only going to take food, but you have to take care of my allies. So he has peaceful relations with some of the people and not so peaceful relations with other people that he does business with, as it were, the, the kings on whose side he fights. And, you know, he's, uh, he's a work in progress, even though he's 75. Well, I, I, I want to say something in the plus column for him is that when, when he has to negotiate with his nephew, which we see already in the ensuing, it's not the next story after the migration, because the next story is he goes to Egypt. And, he, and we've, we've already referenced the fact that he, he tries to say to, he says to Sarah, don't tell them that you're my wife, tell them that you're my sister. Pharaoh gets... Uh, hammered for that, and uh, he emerges from Egypt uh, uh, as a wealthy man, even though he probably came down with some uh, small amount of, of wealth. And then they they go back into the land of Canaan. Lot sees, the, and, and there's there's conflict. The conflict is between Abraham and Lot, and the the you see this conflict. It's such a beautiful text because the conflict is not between the principles. The conflict is between the entourages, you know, you know, when you have political conflict, you, you know, when you have a staff and it's not the, the, you know, the principals are not fighting with each other, but the staffs are fighting with each other. Okay. So, so Abraham does a, a very gracious thing. He says, choose your, choose, choose what you want. Right. And so he, he does have a, a, a graciousness to him. There is a humanity uh, yeah. built to him. There is react to that. So we could say, um, first of all, that 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 is quite an endearing scene. If you want to go south, I'll go north. If you want to go north, I'll go south. And Lot makes the wrong choice, of course, uh, and leaves Abraham. You know, Lot, Lot goes down to what will be the devastated Sodom, and then Abraham has the you know the Hebron and that the whole area that we would today call you know Judea and Samaria. But uh, the one way to look at this is is it may be that Abraham is kind of conflict adverse in the way that Barry was saying, you know, he's just wants to try to get along a little bit um, and doesn't want to fight with Lot either. Says, you take the lead. I'll just, I'll, I'll follow whatever you say. But it is also possible that 
you know, I, I would like this as a narrative vector, because I think it's true about the Torah as a whole, that there's a narrative vector towards greater sophistication, greater involvement, greater faith. Um, and if Abraham at the beginning of the covenant needs uh, to just be given divine protection, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to, I'm going to be your shield and give you great reward. And Abraham says, okay. Uh, then throughout the story, he gains increasing capability to be a covenantal partner. And therefore, the people that, that, that is to say us, his descendants, um, have, they, we also are on this vector. We're getting better. So if, you know, if in the beginning of Breshit, Abraham just says, God says, I want to give you my blessing and, and you're going to be the great people. And Abraham says, okay. But uh, if over time he becomes more and more and more capable of being a leader, being a deep and, you know, true covenantal partner, then that would, that would fit the Bible's approach to get more educated towards more, you know, more strength. So what you're saying is, you know, Abraham, really, I mean, back to the theme, he's a, he is a work in progress, even at the age of 75, when, when the, the new chapter of his life uh, truly begins. Um, no, I, we could go further. And I think that maybe this is, at least on a superficial level, what distinguishes Abraham from Moses is that in Abraham, we see clear growth. He's not going to be the same man when he dies as he is when he first appears in our Parsha. And I don't know if that's really the case with Moshe. I don't know that when we look at Moshe as he works out his life in the, the last four books of the Torah, that we see that he grows as a person. You know, he's been given greatness from the time that he confronts God at the burning bush. And um, except for a few slips along the way, he remains resolute, I think, in a way that um, is not necessarily true of Abraham, who really there is an arc of growth. Okay, so, so let's just fast forward through. Abraham take, goes, to, goes to Egypt, you know, the wife-sister uh, idea. We have a lovely interpretation of that. Uh, Jeremy, just want to highlight how that is a foreshadowing of the Exodus story. Yeah, so uh, the Exodus story, well known to everybody, I think, from Passover and, and the Torah, is that the Jews are enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh kills the males and saves the daughters alive. Uh, Pharaoh says to the to the Egyptians and then to the midwives, "Call call Ben Hayilod Hayora Tashtichuhu. Any boy that's born, you throw in the river. The Kol Habat Tichayun, and any daughter that is born, you should save alive. And maybe we are inclined to think that that's some sort of restraint on Pharaonic cruelty, but I do not believe this is correct. Um, uh, and and then what happens in in Egypt is ultimately they they go out." They go out with great, great abundance. The Egyptians send them all their gold and silver and all the fancy clothes and they leave Egypt. Um, we might be inclined to think that the saving alive of the daughters is, uh, is a restraint on, on Pharaoh's cruelty. But I think that the Abraham story here tells us something different. The Abraham, when he comes to, uh, comes close to Egypt, says to his, says his wife, Sarah, um, uh, say you're my sister so that they will do well by me for in your account they will save my life uh, they will save my life thanks to you um, and, and he is um, 
uh, just before that in, in verse uh, 12 here, it says, I'm afraid that when the Egyptians see her, they'll say she's his wife. They'll kill me and save you alive. The exact same language that is in the passage in Exodus. And then what happens, um, the Egyptians see her and they say how beautiful she is. And the woman is taken in Pharaoh's house. Now, I think we have a maybe a little bit of a, of a happy ending um, inclination to say, God protected her or something like that. The words, Vatukaha isha beit paro, mean that she was taken in Pharaoh's house. Um, she was brought into the harem and she was taken sexually. So just like Sarah is taken and yet ultimately released and Abraham goes, through, goes forth with great wealth, the Egyptian story is the exact same. The boys are killed or many of them are killed the girls are saved alive, not to be nice to the girls, but for a different kind of slavery. And then ultimately they come forth with great wealth. We've got the exact parallel. And I think that our story of Abraham and Sarah's journey in captivity in Egypt and ultimate release is supposed to, to foreshadow the story of Israelite captivity and ultimate release with great wealth. So for, for that alone, it's worth the price of admission to our Parsha talk here. That, that's a I, I, you know, for me, that's a, that was a, a chidush, a novel interpretation. In fact, that 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 shows that there, the Exodus story is a, is an echo of this early story. Encapsulated in this is 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 everything you want to know about the Exodus. Barry, when I was in Israel in rabbinical school, I had a class in midrash with Baruch Feldstein, and we read chapter twelve and thirteen of Breishit, and everything that was written on it from antiquity. Josephus, the Midrash, commentators, etc. And his point was you know, that great comment, um, that what happens to the fathers prefigures what happens to the children. And at the time, over 30 years ago, I thought that was so fanciful that that could hardly be the truth. And it's only as I matured myself that I appreciated the wisdom of that approach, as you, Jeremy, very well highlighted in your interpretation here. Okay. So we have the, 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 the conflict with Abraham and Lot. We have the war of the five kings and the four kings, very complicated and, and rather long chapter. Uh, and then we have this uh, interesting moment where uh, Sarah, is, uh, um, Sarah says to Abraham, you can sleep with my handmaiden. Uh, God has stopped me from having a child. Bona el shifchati. Go to my maidservant, Ulai Ibanem Imena. Maybe I will build the family from her. And he does exactly what, what uh, she says without any kind of hesitation. And then she gets there, there's a conflict between Hagar and Sarai. Hagar, uh, Sarai uh, wants to uh, kick, her, kick her out. Um, but well, then, so this has to be like. A great example of the law of unintended consequences, because what seems to be a win-win situation is actually a, lose, a loss for everyone. And again, we're left at the end of it wondering what really is going on with Abraham. So he takes the wife, Hagar, although the rabbis sort of downplay that aspect of the relationship, and he has the son and he very consciously and casually abandons him. Well, first of all, I just want to point out the beautiful wordplay here. I will be built up through her, Sarah says, because 
Hagar is not a free person. She is a indentured servant of some whatever status. Egyptian status. Egyptian status. But just like just like Rebecca, uh, Rachel and Leah will be the surrogate mothers for the children of Bilhah and Zilpah, the, the handmaids for them, um, Sarah envisions that when Hagar is a baby, because she's her maidservant, uh, that it will be it will redound to it will be Sarah's keilu or surrogate son, but the, the or ibanemimena literally means I will be built up, but they got the word ben in there, so it's maybe I will maybe I will have a child uh, uh, through her, but it's it's really it's quite, it's quite the, the the story is quite great because Sarah's it's Sarah's idea. Please sleep with please sleep with this young girl. Abraham says okay. Don't have to ask me twice. And and then Sarah says, this is all your fault. <laughs> all right. So the last part of the Parsha, which is God is promising them that they will, in fact, have a child and changes their names. Uh, Abraham, his reaction when God says, um, in chapter 17, verse 2, I'm going to make you, multiply you very, very much. He falls on his face. And then just fast forward a, a few verses. God says to, to Abraham, your, your wife, she's going to be called Sarah instead of Sarai. And he falls on his face. I will bless her and I will have a child through her. There will be a child made, you know, created through her. And there will be many, many nations. And Avram falls on his face again. By Yitzchak in verse 17, giving rise to the name Yitzchak, he laughs. By Omer Bilibo, Halaven Be'ashana Yivale, a hundred man, hundred year old man, he's going to father a child. Vim Sarah, Batishim Shana ninety year old woman, she's going to have a child. And and so, uh, can you give me the the emotional? You know, if you're directing this this play or this film, what is your what is your instruction to the actors here? So Abraham to make the, to make the question a little sharper. Yeah, Sarah. This there's two stories of Annunciation of the Children, two laughters. Sarah's we know she gets yelled at in in chapter eighteen. She gets yelled at for laughing. Abraham is a contrasting story what tell us tell us the story how does it work and, and, and given given the the fact that there are two of them so it'll happen next week we'll, we'll save it for next week because we're running out of time the point is abraham wins the nebuch of the year award share me out here for a second so when he says can a hundred year old man give birth of course he knows that's not true because I don't think anything has happened in the last 14 years to his virility. And he should have thought, how can an 86-year-old man have okay, a kid? So I'm going to stop so you right really, there. I'm, I'm going to stop you right there. Because <laughs> last week, last week, we went into this whole spiel about the fact that the, anti the, the, the people before the flood, they all had their children in the years, in their hundreds. And that the, the people afterwards have their children in the 30s, that when they're 30. So I'm reading this now based on what you said, Barry Chesler, okay? Based on what you said. And it's like, wait a minute. He's not, he's not saying something sarcastic. He's saying, you're telling me that you want me to be like those people. No, like no. What he's saying, what he's, but he had Ishmael at 86. What he's saying really is Sarah is too old. 
He's saying, is that really, he's saying that Sarah's too old to have a kid. And, you know, the curious thing here is when God tells him this, what does he say? He doesn't say, let Ishmael be my heir. He says, oh, I have a servant. He could do just as well, too. Yeah. You know, he, he's not the family guy here. And I think what the message is here, like and we see life. this as, as it'll play itself out next week as well with Lot, is that Abraham cannot create the family the way he wants to do it. He can only create the family the way God wants to do it. And it doesn't just require a great man. It requires a great woman as well. I, I just kind to of say, that, that, part, that part is really is deep. That, that part that it has to be Sarah is very, very important. But we, we can't end this thing without noting that there is a, before there, before there was Viagra, before there was Cialis, there was circumcision, which is portrayed here in this uh, you might not think it works the same way. I, I don't know that it works the same way, but um, it is portrayed here in the end of this, in the end of the parasha. You know, I, I said before, and I do think it is a, a statement of Abraham's great faith and commitment. But in the cap of all this, in the beginning of this of this description, the scenes that we're talking about now with the promise of the child at 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 100 years old, uh, and then the execution of it happens right after the promise is this ritual scarification or this ritual maiming of the sex organ of the male sex organ. So uh, somehow that is, I think, seems to be uh, to confer perhaps virility, but certainly to confer goodness, commitment, a sense of purity, sense of righteousness. Right. And what supports that in part is that Ishmael is going to get the same blessing as Isaac in the sense that He's going to be the father of a great nation that's going to be multiplied as well as Isaac's family. Okay, I, I know we're, we're we're way over time, but I just want to end by saying like this. So I I I, I want to. It's not that I want to run in and defend Abraham from your. Columbia. Oh yes, you do. <laughs> you know, this is a, I what I want to say is that this is what makes Abraham interesting. And and of all the patriarchs, I think that you know if if you were to ask me say which one would you like to have a conversation with that and oh. and what which which one would you what are, are you most curious about and which one has the most interesting you know kind of life story and biography i'm, I'm voting for abraham wait what, what's your favorite name yes even despite the fact that my, my okay. two of us, he's got a father us, thing. The two of us are Yaakov. Okay, so I'm going going with, Abraham. I, I think I would go with Yaakov, although I, I might go with Zvulun. He's a very <laughs> underappreciated character. All right. With that, I would invite everyone to dip into this and to explore who they would want, which patriarch they would want to have lunch with. Uh, and on that note, and vote on Parsha Talk. Vote on Parsha Talk. We thank you for joining us. We had such a great time being with you. I look forward to another edition next week. In the meantime, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.